0: Welcome to this episode of Turkish TV Time. My name is Sammy, and I'm here with my friends Ezgi and Sofia. We'll be talking today about The Protector Season 1, Episode 2, which featured a lot of crying and maybe not a lot of plot. And we are all drinking tea today, as usual. I'm having a Twining's English breakfast with milk because I worked at a British company for four years and they converted me and I apologize to the Turk in the room.
1: Yeah it's that's that's not that's the opposite of the tea I'm drinking (laughs) well I mean actually it's not I just I just have black tea without milk but milk is enough to make it (laughs) unacceptable and therefore the opposite so yeah I just have a same as last episode I think Um, traditionally steeped black tea although the tea is not from a traditional source it's from a north carolina supermarket and tea bags but we we make do with what we can out here yeah i'm still having
2: my typical earl gray at the end of the day to help me go to sleep jk not at all but yeah <laughs>
0: Sophia, do you want to take us through what happened or didn't happen in this episode?
2: (laughs) Yeah, so actually for this episode, I felt my notes were a bit short, given that we didn't have that much going on. So after that big reveal at the end of the last episode with Hakan and the shirt, we come back and Hakan is pretty sick, because apparently the shirt kind of like disturbed his body and made him very sick. So basically, he we have a kind of this flashback where they're talking about, you know, the history of of the protector and the immortal and how it all came to Fatih Sultan Mehmet. So Mehmet the Conqueror in a dream, where he basically saw this person that had a dagger. That's the only thing that can kill the immortals. That had a ring that kind of uh, glows when the immortals are near, and then the shirt that of course makes them invincible and that we already saw as hakan was wearing it so basically we come back hakan kind of has a conversation with with zeynep and her father and and they kind of he kind of asks all these questions and zeynep is kind of trying to gauge like if he really is into this whole protector thing if he's going to take it seriously because she really doesn't think that he will and she from the beginning has shown that she's very skeptical about hakan and about his role as a protector and then. Her father kind of reassures her and says, you know, like, this is what we got. Like, he's the protector. And so Hakan kind of says, you know, I'm going to take this on for all the things that they took away from me. Because basically, Zeynep's father also reveals that there were three friends originally, Nishet, who died last episode, who was Hakan's kind of adopt- adoptive father. Zainab's father, whose name I'm forgetting. And then Kamal. there was a third person. Yep. Kemal. And then um, I think... Murat, yeah. Murat was actually the last protector and Hakan's biological father who was killed when he was very young. So that's why kind of he was left to be, to be brought up by, by Nishet who actually kept a lot of this information from him. So Kemal says this was information that your father was supposed to share with you, old well, but he didn't end up sharing it with you. So now I have to share it with you. So basically, Hakan in kind of a predictable way, asks for some alone time with his father to say goodbye and stuff, and basically uses it as an excuse to escape and uh, go looking for Memo, because he gets kind of this urge that he needs to go find him. And so we see that Memo is being tortured still, and basically they realize they can't take any information from him, but they find his cell phone, so they start texting Hakan from his cell phone. And Hakan kind of naively, I would say, believes that that's actually Memo texting him, and goes to meet him outside agia sophia in this square called sultan ahmed square which is where kind of all the main landmarks in istanbul are located or some of the most important the blue mosque agia sophia others that we will talk about shortly in our history section and basically he goes there and he finds memo on a bench and he's dead i assume i'm not sure he um, seems <laughs>
0: pretty dead yeah <laughs> If he wasn't um, dead, then Hakan really screwed him over a second time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and he starts getting shot by this. What's the name of this person? Oh, um, uh, Tek-in. Tek-in? Yeah. No, no, no. But like when you get shot, the sniper by a sniper. Oh, sniper. Who basically misses him and is very confused and like kind of later asks Mazar like, "What? Who is this person? Why are they not getting affected by my bullets?" And at the same time. We've seen a story where we see Mazar go to the shipyard, and he's basically disappearing the body of the person he killed on the previous episode. And we also see Paisal and uh, Leila discussing Hakan, and how Paisal demands that Hakan needs to be hired, and that she needs to track him down in order to bring him in and, and get him hired. At which point, she calls Hakan, and Hakan is in a taxi with Zeynep, and they're going to meet uh in theory memo which later we we find out that he said but basically hakan turns the job down and we can tell from like what the interaction that like probably leila's gonna have to insist until he accepts the job but we shall see in future episodes and then when hakan manages to escape he goes to his father's house and he starts like looking through his stuff finds this, like, little model airplane, kind of like a flashback to, I, I assume, to his childhood and kind of him missing everything. And Zaynep arrives and tells him, you know, we need to destroy all of this. You, we need to destroy any evidence of your past. And he is not very happy with that. And then I think that's my recap, I guess. I don't know if I missed anything, Esgi and Sammy, that you guys want to comment on.
0: The only thing that I remembered is that mazar kills Suzanne in the hospital and kemal wasn't able to stop him or get eyes on him so i think he's still unknown to them
1: yep i don't have anything else
0: Now we can talk about the episode as a group. I thought the like historical like dream sequence was pretty cool. I liked that.
2: You know, I, yep. I thought it had such, like, I feel like it's very Western to have all this crusader mythology. And I feel like this is the the flip side of that crusader mythology in the sense that it's like, usually it's like, oh, we're trying to save Christianity. And here we're kind of trying to save, Mehmet or the Muslim world which I mean I might be reading too much into it but that's kind of what it it took me to.
1: Well it's not really even the Muslim world it's Istanbul as a city which I this is my third time watching this episode now and every time every watch through of this series that I've done I've wondered why would these unkillable otherworldly I assume beings the immortals be obsessed with one city and why wouldn't they just take over the world and eliminate humanity like every single time it's like any kind of any kind of protecting duties are brought up as it relates to the protector it's it's only about the city of istanbul so this could be again going back to napoleon's quote that faisal paraphrased in the first episode that if the world were what was it a country its capital would be Istanbul. so Mm -hmm perhaps this is just centering Istanbul as you know indeed it is the most important city in the world because these supernatural creatures have descended upon it and tried to take over it for thousands of years and the assumption is they're going to spread but not to spoil anything in the future episodes but as the struggle with the immortals continues uh, it, it's very Istanbul-centric, I would say, um, as, a, as a series. So I always found that interesting because if you consider how, how, how big of a global city Istanbul is, like it's not that far of a stretch to hop over to other big cities from there. It's very easy to travel, and there's people from all over that intersect at Istanbul. So I always thought that was weird, and I don't know if you, if that jumped out at either of you.
2: I mean, yeah, I thought I about it.
1: To be honest,
2: yeah, I thought it was either. kind of like a Byzantine remnant, like what, what is in my head is kind of like this whole East versus West clash. And it might, again, just be kind of my view where, you know, Istanbul has represented such a, a coming together of, of very different cultures, kind of like in a way that I would say is kind of equivalent or similar to Jerusalem, even in, the, in that kind of intersection of those three major monotheistic religions not in such like a direct and historical way, but just in a like living day-to-day kind of way in, in something that I think is also seen in, in the Ottoman emp- empire as an empire itself, where, you know, kind of the whole story was that all these different groups could live together, which I mean, has its own issues to, to comment on. But basically I, I, I kind of in my brain just imagined it, like the people that had lived there before and that had, you know, kind of made this city, or like taking the city to a certain point kind of wanted to protect that legacy from from being interfered by or like being you know changed in some way is kind of what i felt about the immortals
0: yeah and i think also istanbul just seems like a city that could have some ancient magic stuff happening you know i think we're going to get into the history of the Hagia sophia and and all of the Stuff that's built up there over the years, but i it wouldn't surprise me if like the immortals magic had something to do with the history of the city itself,
1: yeah, and to be fair, I think I did jump the gun on that analysis a bit because at this point it's not clear what they are actually after, I mean, other than supposedly destroying the city, so, so they're the bad guys they're the bad guys, yeah, but I would say for a viewer at this point it's not necessarily strange or. Confusing that they would be focused on only one city uh, because we don't know exactly what they're capable of, and we don't know even how many there are. How you know what the I mean? Right now, there's one according to what Kemal and Zeynep have told Hakan, but who knows what will happen to that number? But I I do I did like this episode for again the uh, Sophie or Sophie or Sammy Sammy said the dream sequence was cool at the beginning, yeah. and I agree it was very very well shot and edited and gave us something to hold on to in terms of how do we defeat the Mm -hmm. supposedly undefeatable and the rest of the episode is pretty much just setting up the next episode not really I mean moving the plot along but nothing groundbreaking but Mm -hmm. as I was texting both of you earlier about this like you need like there's no I don't know you can't have all I think jaw-dropping scenes back-to-back that would also make for a bad viewing experience after a certain point. So I was okay with the pace. Yeah.
2: Well, and the writers would have a very difficult job because, like, how do you create? Well, yeah. and, and I, I think that you've, like, we've seen it with certain shows where they just have shock after shock. And, like, I kind of, kind of think of, like, straight to Game of Thrones, which... Struggled with with uh, managing those like high impact moments versus those yeah. setup moments, and like sometimes you felt like there were too many setup moments or too many big shock moments, and like you felt either overwhelmed or underwhelmed, depending on like where it, it leaned towards.
1: Yep. Yep. Agreed.
0: So one thing that struck me about this episode was I feel like they had quite a few scenes of setting up that Layla doesn't know what Mazar is up to and is maybe like setting her up to be an opponent to him and I thought that was interesting either it's like trying to mislead us that she actually is in line with the baddies and she's a bad person or it's trying to make us absolutely certain that she's a good person and that we don't need to worry about her killing rivals in a shipyard so
1: what are your guys's feelings on the kind of the three corporate types, Mazar, Leila, and Faisal, and like, do you think they're all on this immortal side? Or are they all immortals? Are they, in, you know, allied with them? Like, what is your feeling?
2: I think the way that Leila has been portrayed, she's kind of just in a very high up position. But I get the feeling it's kind of this archetype of this good person that works for really bad people and Mm -hmm. she hasn't really realized yet how bad the people that she works for are. That's kind of the feeling that I get. Mm -hmm. And then I think Mazal is the guy who does all the dirty work and I'm questioning how dirty Faisal is because he seems to be kind of like mysterious in a way that could be good or bad. But I think he's definitely-
0: character really hasn't been developed yet like he's had very little dialogue he seems like a nice guy just from like his face
2: whereas mazar
0: is like very obviously the bad guy so for now he seems fine but i don't think i don't think mazar is working for himself unless he's the immortal but like i don't know henchman immortal doesn't seem quite right
2: yeah and, and i think they're also setting her up definitely to be hakan's love interest like
0: yeah Unfortunately, kind of,
2: I, I feel like there's definitely um, and I wrote it on my notes, like a love triangle prediction that there'll be a love triangle between Zeynep, Hakan and Leila. And it's kind of funny that both of the women that he's after are like very hard to get are, you know, kind of it's like the show is making a point of like how much these women have to be convinced to think that Hakan is like worthwhile in, in several ways and i think that's very typical of of them eventually falling in love <laughs> in a tv show kind of archetype but that, that might just be me jumping the gun on on this whole issue but going back to Leela, i think they're just trying to show like oh this is a girl who got a lot of oppor- well, a woman who got a lot of opportunities and she really rose up the ranks in the company and i think last episode they talked about how she came from nothing or did she not well i think 'Cause like Hakan was like, Oh yeah, you're so privileged, you're like daddy's girl, and she was like, No, I'm not daddy's girl. I like come from the same background as you, just worked really hard. Just goes again to show kind of like that whole meritocracy archetype, which is also very typical of T V kind of like showing like if you work really hard, of course you're gonna make it to the top, which is another story entirely. But I think <laughs> Definitely, she is probably in deeper than she knows, and she's in for a surprise. And they're probably going to be some sort of confrontation between her and Mazar or her and Faisal when she notices that she's like part of something that she hoped like she probably would not want to be a part of.
0: Right. And the question for me, and I don't feel like we know her well enough to tell, is like, is she ambitious enough to align with the bad stuff once she realizes what is going on, or is she going to be like, really the good girl and like try to get out of it or betray them somehow
2: depends on how much she loves hakan <laughs> i think
1: <laughs> <laughs> i i didn't i don't think i said this while we were quote unquote on air last time but one interesting factoid that i can or teaser i can give our listeners is that the name of the company that Faisal. I guess owns or is in charge of is called Javidan holding and Javidan is both a woman's given name and it means eternal. So interesting, <laughs> interesting little uh, linguistic factoid what teaser there. What could
0: that mean? <laughs> so, well, I was, I was also wondering
1: because, people.
2: because from my very not strong Turkish um, i gathered that when they when Leila and Faisal were, were talking about Hakan they're like referring to him as a child or was i crazy when i when i heard that cuz i i thought it was like interesting and i was wondering if it's just their way of being kind of condescending on him and how you know in theory he, young he is and kind of like an experienced but I'm not sure if that's me mishearing or if that's an actual thing that happened in that scene.
1: Well, it, like çocuk is the Turkish word for literally child and also like kid or even dude sometimes. So it's okay. very like, so I wouldn't like me hearing it in Turkish. I wouldn't have thought, why are they referring to a grown ass man as a child? <laughs> <laughs> that's rude. <laughs> I think they were just saying like young guy or, you know, kid kind okay. of like
2: gotcha.
1: yeah, casually. Okay.
0: One other so- thing, big plot point, is that uh, Mazar now knows that the protector is, like, activated, <laughs> for lack of a better word, because he knows that the, <laughs> that Tekken shot him and it didn't work. So I'm assuming that Tekken is going to meet his end quite soon <laughs> and, <laughs> and that Mazar is going to start hunting for Hakan for real.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, like, Zaynep gives him the shirt, but they, first of all, they never show him getting the shirt off after that big transformation.
0: Yeah, or putting it back on.
2: And then they don't, yeah, so I was thinking when they shot him that maybe he had actually gotten shot, because there's one part where he's, like, panting or, like, barely walking. So I was wondering if he was actually wearing the shirt, or if he, like, actually got shot, and then now he's going to be injured or something. But I guess, like, that's part of kind of the like magic of the show, kind of when the shirt comes on and
0: off
2: um, at will.
0: Or maybe he had, like, one too many Simmits that morning and didn't want to take off his shirt for the cameras. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great theory. <laughs> he's like, nope, can't do it. They'll have to assume that I put the shirt back on.
1: I do like that he's, I mean, this at least in the Turkish reviews and articles I've read, it does call the show a superhero show. And I really, I kind of like maybe I'm sure they thought about this a little bit, but I'm definitely overthinking it, but I do like that they have a superhero without a uniform. Like his uniform is literally one that melts into his skin and like, Mm -hmm. or gets absorbed into his body. And you can't see except for like the very uh, detailed scar tattoo that it produces. (laughs) So, yeah, it's a funny inversion of the genre and of course the fact that as we've already discussed, it's not based in science or kind of the I don't know, Arthurian magic kind of thing or nor or Norse magic, but something Eastern, definitely some connection to Islam, although I can say over the course of the show it's never really expressly tied to any anything in the Quran or any Muslim rites, but definitely you see the in the dream sequences the imams and the various holy men mm-hmm. praying over the enchanted objects so for sure there's some religious connection there but it's not the western or scandinavian especially religions that we're used to seeing with superheroes here in the i guess americas so i'm not gonna say u.s because <laughs> that's exclusive so yeah i, I liked i like that i've always liked that about this show and uh i think it's yeah it makes it it makes the that kind of a story more accessible to different audiences too well really cool. yeah
2: because like i feel like the whole superhero idea is is very well there's certain superheroes that are very all-american and kind of have the american flag colors and you know have this discourse there that is very kind of nationalist in a way like i don't know if you guys have seen the boys which is an amazon prime series that that is basically kind of a spoof on the whole superhero thing, that they have a Superman spoof who's called Homelander. And and I think it kind of like, is an interesting critique of, of the whole superhero archetype and how, you know, it's it's very deeply tied to, to national identity and especially I think in the US, but I, I might be reading too much into it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's interesting
1: if, if you're interested in that topic to check that out. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it. Good rec. <laughs>
2: I watch so much TV, like I can't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Taylor a made spinoff, recommend- spin-off <laughs> uh, podcast where you throw a buzzword at Sophia, and she comes up with a random show recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a, a section
2: at the end of our show.
1: Word associations.
0: Just wait until we watch We'll Have to watch ten episodes per podcast to get. Through oh, yeah. it. <laughs> I
1: was gonna say I don't think we're gonna be able to do. Like 2,000 <laughs> There's only
0: 164.
1: Okay, I rounded it up. So. <laughs> wow, that's so much.
0: It's so good. Okay, what else happened? They're going to get the ring. That's Zeynep and Haakon and the episode by saying, let's go get the ring. I'm hoping we see a training montage sometime soon because I love those in action <laughs> movies. And I think that her like punching him in the face and knocking him on his ass will be great tv
1: yeah we need to see it yeah it was really cute at the end when he was we'll get to the cry counter later but oh, when yeah, he was super worked up and sweaty and like his eyes were bulging and he wanted to find the ring i mean yeah i i sofia was commenting earlier this week when we were all texting that he looks older than he is the actor because he's so frazzled and drenched in tears all the time. But I also think it's kind of cute. So I'm into it.
2: <laughs> well, I was just in shock when they were like, oh, yeah, this." there's a part where Kemal is like showing him the picture of him, Neshet and Murat. Like back in the day in the Princess Islands, which is like close by to Istanbul. They're like kind of these vacation islands, but you can get there on a ferry for like 45 minutes or something. And so... He says yeah this photo was taken in 1989 and I was like oh wow was he born in 1989 like he's kind of close to my age and that kind of freaks me out because I feel like I see him as someone who looks way way older and I don't know (laughs) if it's makeup or if it's just that like I feel like I don't know I have a weird perception of, of age.
0: I think he's just had a really rough couple of days And when everything chills out and he's not like mourning the loss of his father hours previously, he should probably look younger.
1: (laughs) And the shirt adds 10 years.
0: Oh. (laughs) Yeah, that's how that works. (laughs) That's how that works. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) we are going to be talking about the Agia Sophia or Ayasofya in Turkish and this is at the center of our show so far and I'm assuming going forward will be very important based on as things that Eskies let slip. <laughs> <laughs> very,
1: very bad for uh, preventing spoilers. Yeah. Just don't keep me around.
0: <laughs> so this was built in the Byzantine era by the Emperor Justinian. It's super duper old. I don't have an exact number for you guys. It's
1: built in 537. I, there you go. I, don't, I in can't do that math, but yes.
0: 537 seven CE. And it is the most impressive piece of Byzantine architecture that is left. In, once Istanbul was conquered by Mehmet in 1453, it was converted into a mosque because he was so impressed with the building. And then in 1920 something, it was converted into museum, 30, 35, 34, 34, it was converted into museum. And then in July of 2020, it has been converted back into a mosque. So that's something we can definitely talk about after we talk a bit about the history of the building. It's an unbelievably impressive building. When you walk into it, you kind of can't believe that there's something that big and not even talking about how old it is. It's just unbelievably impressive. It was the seat of the Eastern Orthodox patriarchy for a thousand years. And it was also the place where all the Byzantine emperors were uh, crowned once it was built. It has amazing uh, mosaics, Byzantine mosaics, as well as some really amazing calligraphy, Islamic calligraphy. So it's just an amazing example of two world religions and incredible architecture. It was the largest dome. In the world for about a thousand years until um, St. Patrick's Cathedral, or not? Sorry, St. i'm Peter's. Sorry, New Yorker here. <laughs> What's it called? St. Vatican? Peter's Basilica. St. Peter's Basilica. <laughs> P names, man. Um, <laughs> until St. Peter's Basilica was finished, and then that took the prize.
1: And I'd like to just about the architecture, the the dome wasn't really a, a focal point of Islamic mosque architecture until the conquest of Istanbul and them seeing such a, a stunning example of it almost a thousand years after it was built, still standing and, and like like you've already said, very gorgeous, very impressive. Um, so Sinan, the most famous Ottoman architect in all of his work, including Süleymaniye Mosque and Seydemiye Mosque in Edirne, all of those very, what you would consider like the, the textbook Ottoman mosque, that architecture is lifted from the dome of uh, Hagia Sophia. So it's, it's very, and, and now I think people, I don't know, I'm a little bit biased, but maybe you guys can comment before you were in Turkey. Would you have associated automatically a dome with a mosque? I think most people
0: yeah.
1: think of domes when they so. think of mosques. Yeah, yeah that's, so that's
0: super interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah.
2: And it's actually like part of such a distinctive part of the Istanbul skyline when you fly in because you can't really see the minarets because they're very like thin but like you can see kind of see them but like what really stands out is just a bunch of domes everywhere which is not very typical of most other architectures I would say Mm -hmm. or it's just very distinctive of Istanbul and I think
1: possibly of the Muslim world but definitely of Istanbul. Definitely that kind of dome. I would say I haven't I haven't traveled unfortunately around other parts of the Middle East, but kind of the images and, and videos I've seen from other places. The domes the the shape is a little bit different than the ones in in the Turkish architecture. So I think that like the exact curvature. And unfortunately, this isn't a visual medium, so we can't show anything <laughs> to our listeners. But if you Google it, it's it's a very like Sophia said, very distinct look uh, that the city, and if you blow it up to you know Turkey in general, because uh, there's a lot of mosques everywhere, you'll see a, a very particular kind of dome and it, and it looks like the Hagia Sophia. And I, I, I want to also add that I've taken, I don't know how many non-Turkish friends and visitors to Istanbul to the Hagia Sophia. I don't know how many times I've been there at this point, but every time it's just like the same reaction of walking in and how big it is, just yeah it's, not, yeah, it's just this inability to process the size, um and then you look up and, like Sammy said, you see the the mosaics like there there are these angels with their wings spread in each of the corners of the dome, uh four corners of the dome, and then below them are these giant wooden plates that have the calligraphy, so the sign of Allah and the prophet and all of the senior people are very of a very <laughs> very weak Muslims, so i don't know, but all the calligraphy names um of of those people and exactly what sammy said it's it's the two worlds not even colliding, I would say coming together and coexisting yeah and it's really it's really a beautiful symbol of that and it, unless we want to say more about the architecture i'd like to pivot to the mosque <laughs> topic
0: before before we pivot to the uh yeah. topical controversy news. Yes, stuff. I'm barely
1: holding myself.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let me just say a little bit about the location. So the Agia Sophia is located in the old town part of Istanbul. It is in Sultan Ahmed Square and it sits exactly opposite the Blue Mosque which is probably the other most important piece of architecture in Istanbul. They're actually at the two ends of a Roman hippodrome, which was used for chariot races. And there's a obelisk pillaged from Egypt during the time of the Eastern Roman Empire that also sits there. So it's a really amazing spot for all of the most important ancient historical pieces in Istanbul and also one of the most amazing kofta places is oh. right across from there if you go to the Aya Sophia I highly recommend the Sultan Ahmed Kufta unfortunately there's like a couple on that road and they all seem to have the same name so I don't know how you find the really good one good luck
1: <laughs> I walked into the wrong one and very awkwardly excused myself after yeah. being sat down. I was like, this, yeah. look great.
0: there's just one but it's so amazing highly recommend so now we can pivot to what's happening right now in July of 2020. Eski, if you want to take the floor. Please.
1: Thank you. I don't know how you knew I really <laughs> wanted to talk about this. Yeah, it's, it's disappointing to say the least that it's been, I wouldn't even say it's been converted to a mosque because the funniest part of this whole thing is that in 1934, when it was open to the public as a museum, if you look at the actual deed, a, a deed again that's Signed by Ataturk, it's got the whole, like, Republic insignia on it, it's not an Ottoman document. Mm-hmm. It, it, the deed refers to it as the, uh, the Ayasofya Mosque. So it's never, it was, it, it's, a, it's a mosque, it's always been a mosque since, I guess, 1453, but the part that's for worship only, it has been open and it's free of admission, and it was free admission, obviously, to worshipers. So people have been able to pray, uh, do the do the Muslim prayers there? Since since 1934, what they're doing now is essentially making the entire face that was you know purely a museum, where you had to pay a uh, where you had to pay admission to go in and explore, go in with a guide. Um, they're making I guess all of that open to worship now, and adhering to the the five prayer times and shutting the whole thing down just for prayers, like you see in all the other mosques in Istanbul, where tourists aren't allowed in for about an hour for each of the the five windows of prayer time. So I suspect that's what they're doing. And they're, they've been talking about, Oh, do we cover up the mosaics with curtains or with, you know, dimming lights around them or what we're going to do. And it's, for me, it's just very disappointing that it's, it's very politicized. It's not, you know, it's not an issue that was really on the top of, I would say anyone's mind. It's more like in the U S where, if you have an election coming up and there are economic problems, what are people going to talk about? They're going to talk about social issues that are going to divide people um, and people are going to be very partisan about them and there's no way to really be in the middle on them. And this is, this is kind of one of those issues that have been made to become a hot-button social issue when really what should be discussed in Turkey is you know, are the economic conditions, the, the, um, how we're going to deal with COVID as everyone else is talking about in the world, and to, to bring this up again, it's been brought up several times over the past few years. I can't tell you how many times Sophia has texted our group texts and been like, oh, <laughs> they're, they're talking about making it a mosque. What's going to happen? Her namesake. Like,
0: She's very worried about her namesake.
1: <laughs> and I was always like, oh, don't worry. It's all politics. It's all theater. And I still feel that way. But they've taken it a little bit further this time, obviously. I don't, I'm still skeptical that it's going to be permanently like this arrangement just because the, those tickets were not cheap <laughs> to Hagia Sophia No, to, not to, cheap to at in. all. They were and, probably
0: like 30 or $40.
1: Yep, yep. And so many people were there. There's always a line. There are guides, you know, Ministry of Tourism yeah. certified guides making their living. their living. They make their living by touring so
0: people, yeah. I
1: just don't see it as a sustainable arrangement at all. I, I think there's probably going to be a call for an early election at some point in the near future. And this is going to be one of the victories that Erdogan's camp, will claim so i i'm very skeptical as to how long this will last i don't think people should feel like oh i should have gone to istanbul before this happened i think i don't think it's going to last very long um but it's nonetheless disappointing and it's getting turkey again in the press for very very much the wrong reasons right. so i yeah. feel like
2: there's so many kind of implications that aren't like that clear for one as we mentioned like the, the tour guides and, and the revenue also from the museum because you know going to museums in turkey is not that cheap to be honest and turkey has become such a hub for for tourism and also you know today agia sophia has like a lot of of explanations kind of like of, of all the history outside i remember outside there was you know this whole site where they had artifacts and 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 things and and i think once it becomes a mosque it kind of loses that archaeological aspect to it in the sense that people will stop looking at it as a historical building and like as an architectural building and it'll be more difficult for people to interact with the building in kind of a historical way because like if you when you go into the blue mosque yet yeah, like of course there's you know you, you have a tour guide and they'll they'll explain to you and you know the different tiles and everything but it's clearly kind of separated and structured physically in as a place as any mosque is, you know, it kind of has the prayer spaces for women in the back and then the prayer spaces for men. And, you know, some areas are circled off. And I feel like at Hagia Sophia, at least when I went, which granted was a few years ago, you kind of had the chance to explore a lot more of the place on your own. And you kind of got to see the minaret, but you also got to go on up to the second floor and see, you know, a lot of mosaics and, and specific details that maybe like once it's physically made up as a mosque that'll be more difficult and, and harder to kind of get that full view which obviously there's places that are off limits but I think when you go to a mosque like it's it's much more you know there's kind of a if, if it makes sense kind of like a ritual to it like you can walk here you can go here you can do this you can do that and like Hagia Sophia, the visitor experience is not necessarily like that. Like it's, it's much more, you know, explore on your own, go to this section, go to that section, see like this part that was part of the, you know, Greek architecture and the Greek, you know, religious experience. And then like go and see this, like the minaret where the imam would sit when it was a mosque officially during the empire. So I think that's going to change definitely. The experience of the viewer will change or if the visitor will, will change dramatically.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, at least for me, when you walk into a mosque to visit, or when you walk into a museum to visit, it feels very different. You feel very different. You're trying to like be respectful of the worshipers. You don't want to go places where you're not wanted, because that could be like very insulting. Physically, you have to As a female, if you're not wearing a covering, you have to cover your head and cover your shoulders and your legs. It's just a different experience, and I think not negative, but it will definitely change how you walk into and look at the Hagia Sophia. And I don't know. I think it'll be interesting how they handle it. Hopefully, they don't make people feel unwelcome there. Do do
1: do you guys feel that kind of the same hesitation or like worried about doing the wrong thing or walking into the wrong area when you visit a a church because i mean like notre dame is a it's i would say it's architecturally it's a it's a significant building it's also an operate operational cathedral catholic church so is it is it because it's islam and we're less familiar with it maybe or is it because purely because it's a place of worship in general
0: yeah i mean i'd be interested to see well i I think when you when
1: you walk
2: when you walk into Notre Dame you like know that you have to be quiet and you know that you have to behave a certain way and like you can't curse or any. like I feel like it's just a general feeling when you walk into a religious space like there's kind of a solemnity to it where I mean that might also be controversial where like tourists like kind of ignore that solemnity vibe or like you're just in another like you're in a different mindset than when you go to a place of worship or like I don't know for example if you if you go to any big cathedral like you're expected to kind of also follow a ritual like first you need to like give yourself the blessing I don't know what that's called in English and then you go and then you go a certain way and if people are praying like you can't really take pictures I I, I do think yeah. it translates to other things I think for westerners it's even more shocking because of what Sammy mentioned kind of like dressing a certain way you know acting a certain way feeling like you maybe you're being disrespectful of what's going on and the people that are kind of actually there to use the building for the purpose that it's meant to be used whereas like when you go to a museum or something like that you're kind of in a, in a mindset to kind of read stuff and learn. I do think, I do think it's, it's different when it's an active like site of worship versus when it's, you know, an archeological historical building.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, think,
1: I agree. I think I, I, as Sophia can improve its, uh, it's signage. Uh, so maybe, I don't know, maybe people being quiet and guides not being allowed in. I don't know if guides are going to be allowed in or not. I, I, who knows? But uh, if, they're, if I hope they improve the signage at least so people touring it by themselves can <laughs> learn more because that's very limited. I don't like that about it.
0: <laughs> if, you, if you're going in the near future, definitely go and get a guide because it really transforms the experience to hear about yeah. everything from them. And yeah, I would also say, as a person who was raised 0% religious, I feel very uncomfortable. In churches, I'm pretty sure I'm not supposed to walk down the center aisle, because I feel like people always cross themselves. And I don't think you're not supposed to walk there if you're not Christian. I don't really know. So I always like, skirt the edges <laughs> like a robber or something. <laughs> so I don't know.
1: You're an affront to God, Sammy.
0: I think so, yeah. <laughs>
1: There's also, I, I would like to also just insert, insert the factoid that the world's most photographed cat is the Aya Sophia's cat. Um, <laughs> she's she's old. She's like 15 and her name is Glee and she, uh, yeah, she's she's in there. She's got little cross eyes and she's super cute, but wow. uh, Obama petted her when he visited in 2005, wow. or 2009, I'm sorry, she was born in 2005. So I and the minister of tourism said that Igli will be fine after the mosque conversion. I don't know what that means. It sounds very <laughs> ominous. <laughs> I hope she will actually be fine. Oh
0: God. Yeah, maybe we should do a segment at some point on uh, Turkish or yeah. Istanbul street animals and cats in particular. <laughs> yeah.
2: Agreed. I think mostly it should be about our terrifying slash very funny experiences with cats yeah the cats yeah.
0: are really aggressive where we did our study abroad and they <laughs> scared us for life this
1: is mostly for them and students were uh just an accessory an for inconvenience
0: them that and inconvenience yeah. yeah
1: exactly <laughs> or that <laughs>
0: Going to move on to our favorite segment of the show which is wtf hawk and also our crying counter so which would you like to start with today
1: i like the crying
0: okay i counted four cries but i could also be talked down to three
1: yeah i had the same what? i think i think it was, there was one extra long cry that was broken up into two scenes but it was mm-hmm. like one instance of expelling yeah, from his tear ducks.
2: I don't I don't know how you can make the distinction between the different cries because he's just like in some scenes just constantly crying.
0: He
1: was really crying for about two thirds of the episode.
0: Okay, so I wrote it down as so first he's crying because he got the shirt off and his body is all out of whack. Oh. Then okay. he yep. cries because dead dad. Then mm. he cries in his childhood home, I guess because he realizes everything's changed and memo's gone or whatever and then he cries when he was shot
1: i think the first cry maybe i didn't count hit um the hangover cry because he was just like kind of sweaty and tired i wasn't sure if it was crying or not (laughs) so hard to tell it's hard to tell Yeah, there's a lot of just liquids (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) what did y'all have for your what the fuck moments
0: today my what the fuck hakan shout out is for puking twice in one episode because (laughs) truly that was amazing they're really asking a lot of this actor to puke twice and cry four times in a single episode he really lost a lot of liquids i hope they gave him gatorade or something (laughs) Um, that's all i had
1: go ahead sophia
2: i'm sorry no 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 you go ahead mine is actually not hakan
1: sorry oh oh Oh, wow okay then yeah better save that for last uh mine was very kind of standard plot driven but just the fact that like someone texted him i mean granted from memos phone but still he gets a text while his friend is missing saying come to this very public place it's like who first of all who in istanbul would be like voluntarily wandering onto sultan ahmed square no. to meet up like oh my god to anywhere but there because there's I mean, <laughs> so many people and trams to get there are always so crowded so why why the heck would you do that so for him to not be like why are we meeting there can't we go somewhere a little more like low-key a little bit strange but he's not the he's not the brightest bulb so
0: <laughs> he's having a rough couple of days he is guys. yeah that's
1: true it's a lot of trauma <laughs> i'm insensitive oh well actually i
2: also had another comment but i'll do my what the fuck first and then i'll do my comment okay so the my what the fuck was for zeynep when she said to her father to kemal she said He's the protector. He shouldn't care if they killed his father, right? I wouldn't care if they killed my father, and she says that to her own father. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> that, that was messed weird. up.
2: <laughs> that was very what the fuck in my book.
1: She does um, not fuck around, though,
0: to that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And um, her father is so kindly. I don't know how she grew up like that. <laughs> yeah.
2: Just beating my him up. other remark is, is how, like, why is Nisha's house so fancy, and then Hakan lives in, like, like, not that cool of a house. Like, his house is ridiculous. Like, he's going through all the rooms, and they're enormous. He has, like, five rooms. And then Hakan is living, like, elsewhere. I don't yeah, know. I thought, that, I
0: thought that house was a lot nicer than I expected. But at the same time, I feel like if you have a stall in the Grand Bazaar, like, you're made.
1: Probably a family house, too. I mean, that's what I assumed when I saw that it had been in the family for um, sure.
2: But why doesn't he let Hakan live there
0: in Memo, then?
1: I mean, Hakon probably. Hakon's very. Uh, he's he's very a grown-ass ass man. Minded. Yeah, he probably to. He's an wanted
0: entrepreneur. To...
1: Yep. Serial <laughs> <laughs> entrepreneur,
0: sort of thing.
1: Serial <laughs> failed entrepreneur.
0: Serial failed. Entrepreneur. Yeah, I don't.
1: You don't need to reveal whether the series were a success or not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wonder if he can spin this protector thing into some money somehow.
1: <laughs> Fashion uh, immortality shirts. Yeah. <laughs> Also, I just need to comment on the first episode how like there were so many damn books in that apartment and everyone knows those two don't read. Like look those at them. Those two
0: do not read. Yeah,
1: books. why were there so many goddamn books everywhere? <laughs> they were probably like lifting them or something.
0: <laughs> they were going in the store.
1: Oh, okay, it was their inventory.
0: Yeah. All right, guys, any more comments? Oh, question. There's, so there were seven immortals is what it said in the, in the like prologue thing, but there's only one left. Is that
1: yeah. right? Yeah. Okay.
0: So we only need to worry about one.
1: Yeah. But it's a little bit funny to me that they know there's one and the loyal ones have been fighting all of them for however many centuries and like none of the people in this order like know what he looks like or she looks like. Yeah why is this like has it been a few generations since they've actively cared or looked and like were they waiting for the immortal to start poking things to activate the protector like i don't know Nishit not telling hakan about his kind of destiny earlier is a little bit irresponsible I, i get that it was out of love or whatever but come on (laughs) <laughs> got unkillable beings after.
0: At least put him in karate class after school or something. Yeah, you know? yeah
1: he's, he could be a little less useless than he <laughs> is right now. I'm team Zaynep all the way. Yeah. <laughs> On that. Definitely. But
2: I, I think that they actually mentioned that he, like they are especially shady and like kind of hide themselves as like a protection mechanism because I guess they don't have a shirt to make them immortal. Or Oh, but they are immortal. <laughs> they are yes. <laughs> but
0: they, they can be killed by the dagger.
2: Yep. Mm-hmm. Also, I'm um, like, where are they gonna find the ring? That's kind of my question now.
0: Yeah. Like, do they even know
2: who it is, or is it a quest?
0: Well, they said they they had split up the items between loyal yeah. ones, so I assume they know who has it, but maybe not for protection purposes.
2: I feel like that's just a quest. We're going to embark on a quest.
0: We're going on a quest.
2: No, I'm sure Hong shall...
0: will do great.
2: Oh, God. He definitely
0: will not do great.
2: <laughs> it's so funny when he tries to attack Zainab and she just, like, eats him up.
0: I know. It's so great. I hope there's more of it next episode. I
2: wasn't expecting that for sure.
0: <laughs> All right, guys. Well, this was great. Thanks for listening. That wraps up our episode. You'll... Get us in the next episode talking about season one, episode three, Will We Find the Ring? Will Hakan cry again? We have to wait to find out.
1: (laughs) I think we know one of those answers.
0: (laughs) Maybe.